Hi, everyone. Welcome to the February 25th, 2022 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we get rolling, just want to let you know, as you know, Colorado Inside Out likes to specialize in local topics, whatever's going on here in Colorado. So we're not going to jump into what clearly is the international headline of the day and what's going on in Ukraine. However, please know that because of your support, PBS 12 is able to provide a lot of great coverage straight from DW, that's Deutsche Welle News, straight from Germany. We have live coverage 24-7 on 12.3. We have it available at pbs12.org. We have it on several times during the day here on Channel 12 on 12.1. So if you're interested in that, there is a lot of different ways we can serve that with a great media source right there in Europe to give you some great coverage. So uh, we have you covered on both ends. But tonight, we're going to stay focused here in Colorado and get right to our show. Deaths due to accidental fentanyl overdose have seen a significant uptake in Colorado since 2020, which is leading lawmakers to reconsider the law that changed its criminalization status. The original law declaring possession of up to four grams of personal use drugs like fentanyl, a misdemeanor, was passed in 2019 with bipartisan support. Patty Calhoun, as always, we start with you on this one. Uh, a lot of focus to the laws surrounding fentanyl and just fact that it is really blown up as a, an available risk and problem here in Denver and throughout the state. Uh, do you think we'll see some action from the Colorado legislature this session on this issue? Oh, certainly we'll see action. The five deaths we just had uh, will make sure of that. In 2019, I think people really didn't understand the effects of fentanyl and just how dangerous it could be. I think they were thinking pot. They were thinking psychedelic mushrooms, which are going through the legislature again now. They didn't realize how bad fentanyl can be when you have no control over how it's produced, who you're buying it from. It's, is it laced like that in those five deaths where it was laced, cocaine was laced with fentanyl and obviously bad, bad fentanyl. I was talking to someone who runs a restaurant group with hundreds of employees here, and he said he's had no employees die of COVID, but he's had several die of fentanyl, and it's become kind of a recreational drug that people just don't understand. And so we're going to have to get a handle on it one way or another. We saw the big bust in Union Station, outside Union Station, that the Denver Police Department just did this week, and I think a lot of those were fentanyl busts. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. It's great to have you back, uh, David. Um, there's a lot of different details with this law, but I think a big one that's a little bit more general that you can help us break down is differences between a felony and a misdemeanor. Is that a, a big deal for a law to separate that where it's, it's a whole different path or are they closer than we might think? Well, they're similar in that you can get arrested for violating either one. And, and the possession of four grams or less of fentanyl or other various drugs is, is still, a, as a class one misdemeanor, uh, you can, I believe it's up to a year in, in prison. It goes on your permanent record, but it's less severe than a felony because a felony conviction uh, can disqualify you from all kinds of employment for the rest of your life. Uh, it's a lifetime prohibitor for possession of a firearm, uh, many other things. So the, the consequences are more severe. But of course, that, that's why the legislature was made that change in 2019 is they said, we don't want to, you know, somebody does this once, we don't want to give them the scarlet letter on their head that'll uh, ruin the rest of their life and uh, in, in their view, reduce the chance of rehabilitation. The challenge here is fentanyl is, is 100 times more potent than by unit, by weight, than, than heroin. So it's it relatively easier for somebody who is 
retail dealing to carry that quantity without, uh, without going over the, the four gram limit. I think the legislature was more interested in uh, reducing the penalties for people who are, are have personal use quantities or you know maybe small quantities they share among their friends, but they're not in, engaged in the business. Also join us, Scott Martinez. Great to have you back, Scott. Uh, a managing partner with with Martinez and Partners, also former city attorney, and and with that experience, Scott, I wanted to narrow down. Uh, it's we're talking about a state law here, but it's the cities that are on the front lines that are dealing with the ramifications of this. And do you think we'll hear more perspective from cities on how maybe this law should be changed, amended, or you know where it goes from here? Well, certainly there's unintended consequences of any law. And I think we'll hear from police chiefs, managers of safety, um, as new legislation comes forward. And they'll provide some anecdotes, some data that will let us know how that law change in 2019 has really affected law enforcement on the streets and uh, help us understand how fentanyl might be different than other drugs as it is manufactured and distrib distributed. My hope is, is that as they provide these stories, that they will focus on the actions of the worst of the worst, these distributors, these people who are in a business of selling drugs. And we might see some new laws out there like uh, uh, distribution resulting in death or distribution resulting in, in bodily harm that can help us get those guys off the street. And at the same time, differentiate that from the people who happen to have addiction issues and provide those wraparound services because we are not going to jail or arrest our way out of the problem of addiction. We needed to deal with that in addition to our problem with distributors. Also joining us, Bree Davies, podcast host with CityCast Denver. Folks, if you're looking for a great source for a great city story, CityCast Denver is a great source. You've done a great job there, Bree. Um, there are a lot of people behind these stories. It's not just a state law we're talking about. It's not just cleanups for cities. There are people both on the user side of things, and yeah, ram that has ramifications on things like people who uh, are homeless. And you also have the user, the, 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 the dealer side of things, which I think people in general would want to deal with and clean up. Um, where do we go from here? What do you think governments are going to do to try to address this growing problem? Uh, this is such a struggle for me. I reached out to my friend Lisa Ravel at Harm Reduction Action Center after this news broke. Um, she's on the ground working with folks who inject drugs every single day. And uh, she always says if shame, stigma, and incarceration worked, we would have wrapped this up years ago. I'm, I'm 41 years old. The war on drugs has been going on my entire life and beyond. It's not solving problems to throw people in jail. I don't see anything good coming out of this um, focus on legislation when we need to actually just focus on first keeping people alive and then figuring out which, where to go from next. Harm reductionists have been talking about fentanyl for years and nobody was listening. This is coming. This is synthetic opioids are so much easier to produce than you don't need a whole poppy field. This is not an agricultural situation anymore. I think it's similar to what we saw with meth where you can make it in your bathroom. I don't know the process for fentanyl, but I'm guessing it's a lot easier than relying on crops. So I think it's gonna be much more complicated and complex and in the process of trying to deal with it, we're gonna see a lot of collateral damage of more folks ending up incarcerated and it ruining their entire lives. And we're still, drugs will sell themselves. It's not gonna solve the problem. Good point.
This week, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear the case of a web designer who wants the right to refuse creative services to people celebrating same-sex marriages. The hearing is reminiscent of the 2018 Masterpiece Bakery case in which a baker refused to create a wedding cake for a gay couple and revisits the debate on whether public accommodation laws are in violation of the First Amendment. Uh, David, we are lucky to have someone who's actually argued a case uh, uh, in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. What are the key differences here? I know there's similarities, but there's key differences. What do we need to know as we look at this case? Well, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case never got to the actual legal merits. In, instead, the, the opinion from the majority of the court by Justice Kennedy said that the actions of the Civil Rights Commission uh, were unconstitutional because two of the commissioners had expressed very overt, bigoted, malicious bias against the cake shop owner's religion. And he said, you, you can't have government decision-making on that basis. But that, that's as far as, as it went. This new case, 303 Creative LLC versus Elenis, has religion in the background, uh, but that's not what the court wants to talk about this time around. When the court granted certiorari, they framed it as a pure freedom of speech issue. It's a First Amendment free speech issue, not a First Amendment exercise religion issue. The question is, it said, the court said, petition granted limited to the following question, whether applying a public accommodation law to compel an artist to speak or stay silent violates the free speech clause of the First Amendment. So Attorney General Weiser is representing uh, the defendants, the, the, the Civil Rights Commission, the head of the Civil Rights Division, and obviously their answer to the, that question by the court is no. And the other side of the case is, uh, or the, the answer to the question is yes, the court, the government can compel people like that. Uh, the other side of the case is Lori Smith. She has a graphic design firm, wants to start doing weddings, but doesn't want to do gay weddings, and Colorado law forbids her that choice. It's a big case. There were 14 cert petition, 14 amicus briefs just on the cert petition alone um, in this case, including one by the Cato Institute, where I'm an adjunct scholar. I wasn't involved in this. But they point to precedent saying, like, the government can't make you convey a message on your license plate. The government can't force a newspaper to print rebuttal articles. The government can't force a parade organizer to allow a group in the parade that the organizer disagrees with. Mm -hmm. Scott, so it seems that, well, this case is centered on something that might be familiar and a little, you know, tangentially related to the Masterpiece case. Uh, you also have something that would affect a lot of other areas. This is beyond, um, you know, it, when you talk about First Amendment, there's going to be a lot of different ramifications. Uh, do you think this is going to be making a lot of big headlines? And again, somehow Colorado finds itself here in a, another big case that's going to the Supreme Court. Um, great question. It's no accident that's here in Colorado. Um, because we have to ask who's doing this and what do they want. The who is professional plaintiffs. These are folks who um, are pretending to be a design firm that goes out and provides services to couples who uh, want to have their same-sex uh, marriage documented on a website. There is no such website as, as it is today. They are not providing uh, any wedding services to anyone. These guys were shopping for a, for a place to do a, a lawsuit. Colorado was a great place to do it, um, and they, they went forward. So it's no accident. The what, um, as uh, David was talking about, the public accommodations clause, which says that you can't deny business services based upon who a person is um, if they are in a protected class. And then you can't go and advertise that we deny services based uh, and will make money off of that denial um, is something that we found to be illegal. And for me, I take great solace in the fact that that, that behavior is not allowed. 
as an ethnic minority, I don't want to have to worry about walking up to a gas station and them saying, you know what, we don't like the way you look, we're not going to sell you a gallon of gas. You're not going to get your bag of groceries. We've said in Colorado, you can't deny business services based upon who you are, and that's the way it should be. Bri, it feels like the, the First Amendment is uh, one of the most important rights Americans have, but also rife with these kinds of conversations that have been from, since the amendment was created. <laughs> so uh, where do you think we go from here, not only just with the legal part of the case, but I think probably also the, the conversations here in Colorado? It's tough, but I mean, Scott makes the best point to me is like this would just open the door for possible discrimination of other groups or to, you know what I mean, sort of push back on what we've been working towards for so long. I mean, and I also think that's so interesting that this this is about a sort of fictitious website creator. It's like, I guess Colorado's the fertile ground for that. I don't, I don't know, to be honest with you. That's the toughest part is that that freedom of speech component, but it, marginalizing further, further marginalizing people that are already marginalized is never okay in my book. Patty, you've had a little bit of experience with the First Amendment, uh, being the editor of a newspaper for a, a few years. Uh, your take on the potential ramifications of what we're seeing here. Well, it's so interesting because it is such a cynical ploy, which is the thing that is the worst part of it. But Bree and I were talking about this yesterday because it's kind of let the buyer beware in some ways if a person has a website and they're offering a service and they're like, we really kind of don't want to help you out this, you know, if you are a gay, if you are female, if you are anything. And you think if you're a consumer, you'd kind of like to know who you're giving your money to. Right. So that's one of the dilemmas because you don't want any kind of discrimination, except maybe if you're the purchaser, you would like to find someone a little more simpatico. Going back to a restaurant, there's a restaurateur here who's put a lot of very uh, personal opinions on Facebook that I think most of his customers wouldn't like if they knew about it, if he had it on the homepage of that restaurant, would people still be going there? It gets into so many interesting issues, but bottom line, you don't want discrimination in services. On Tuesday, the Denver City Council unanimously passed the bill to modernize the Denver Board of Adjustment for Zoning. This will be the five-person board's first overhaul since 1956. While small, the Board of Adjustment for Zoning is involved in many important decisions, including many regulations around safe camping sites. Uh, Scott, I'll lean on your experience with the city here because I think a zoning board is one of those that people will completely zone out in hearing about. They, they exist. I'm sure they do wonderful things, but please don't put me to sleep with describing what they do. And then they see the ramifications of what a zoning board can do. And like, well, wonder why is there a big concrete block of townhomes where there used to be a, a nice set of Victorian homes in Denver. So this seems important, but also that, that boring part of the city that people don't want to get into. Tell us more about the impact of a zoning board in Denver. Sure. When I was city attorney, I walked into one of our first meetings and we were talking about litigation around land use, like why some big building was going to go where it was going to go and everybody was suing everyone. And as the lawyers were explaining the details of the case, uh, they said the most important thing to understand is who was on the zoning board 45 years ago. And I said, well, why would that matter? And then they went into the personalities and the grudges and um, all the behind-the-curtain um, adventures that had happened back 45 years ago. And I thought to myself, this can't be the way that we determine what is fair and what is lawful. We need predictability when we apply laws to our land that's going to be there forever. 
So I applaud the Denver City Council in trying to find ways to bring predictability and certainty to people who are going through a process to say, I want to do this with my land, or I'd like an exception. Predictability is a good thing for citizens, and it's a good thing underneath the law. Bree, you've done some fantastic work, both with CityCast Denver and before on podcasts and other stories about how Denver has changed. And uh, you and I both grew up here. We know how North Denver's changed. I look at Navajo between 30th and 32nd. That is a, a lesson learned of what zoning rules can mean. But what do you think this overhaul means for the future of Denver? I mean, like you said, we both grew up here. Think about the Denver that we knew then versus the Denver now. We can't be utilizing this system from 1956 to look at the land use right now. We need space. We need to create, you know what I mean? Like it comes down to what, what's really interesting is I agree with you. You start talking zoning and everybody's like, so boring, but it really impacts everything that happens in your neighborhood, in mm -hmm. everyone's neighborhood. So I'm thinking about this case where I talked to a family, uh, the North Star uh, newspaper in North Denver had covered this family trying to build an accessory dwelling unit, a mother-in-law apartment for their mother who was sick. They have been going through this for a year with the zoning board to add something to the property that they already own. If we're doing this at nitpicking with every single person that wants to expand housing options in Denver, we're never gonna get out of this crisis. This board needs overhauling more than anything, and it could help us really benefit us in the long run to have these more uniform ways of dealing with land so that someone can go ahead and build something. I know sometimes we just think of all the big ugly things that happen, like when you just can build whatever you want. I don't think it's that necessarily. It's that we need to be able to create more housing options, and this board has really held up our ability to do that. Patty Westward itself has also written a lot about what a zoning board can do. What do you think this overhaul will mean? Well, remember, this is the appeals board. So we already have the zoning in place, and Denver re-upped its zoning in 2010, and a lot of people have problems with that, but we passed it in 2010 but they didn't change how the appeals board works. There are no specific requirements for the people who are on the appeals board. You don't have to be an architect. You don't have to have a city planner. You don't have to have a builder. You don't have to have a neighborhood representative. That's changing so that you will actually, and you don't have to have any training in how to listen to appeals. That is all changing. That's all for the good to make it more representative. Uh, but we will continue to hear endless numbers of appeals, but it's better to have it be uniform. The ones coming right up are safe city camping things. They're, you You've got one complaint that's very cynical. It's by property owners up by the one that's on city-owned property up in the Cole neighborhood. The other is by neighbors um, at the one by 8th and Alati, and they're very different situations. You would hope the board can really understand the nuances, but you need a nuanced membership. Mm -hmm. uh, David, uh, what do you think? I, mean, I imagine a board like this uh, can impact a lot of the freedoms of movement and, and things that happen in a city. Uh, is this a good thing that is happening or do we need to be uh, more careful? Well, I, I think in, based on excellent coverage in Westward, which Patty was too modest to talk about, um, I, I think this is, the board is less important than one might think. It's, as it, it's the board of adjustment for zoning appeals. So everything you don't like about Denver zoning, go blame the zoning administrator in the first place. These guys are just somebody you can appeal to if you want a variance because you can prove a hardship or the zoning administrator acted outside the law. Um, but whatever our problems are, they're, they're not the board's fault. Um, the, as Patty said, the changes are for better training. Uh, people have more background in, in land use, such as requiring an architect to be on the board. And those, and those all seem like good ideas. What I worry about is what the city council is planning next, which is to put a, put a ballot issue on to take the, that board 
out of the Denver City Charter, and which is like the constitution for the city of Denver, and then the city council could play around with the board all at once with no limit uh, on requiring input from the voters. Let's get a quick take on this last one. Douglas County has become the focus of a water rights debate with the San Luis Valley. Renewable Water Resources has proposed an idea to build a pipeline from the San Luis Valley to Douglas County. The company says San Luis Valley residents willing to give up their water rights will be compensated financially. Critics claim that the move will further deplete an already dry area of the state. Bree, your quick take on this one that people or the critics are saying that this is just another buy and dry situation. It's a climate change issue. I mean, San Luis Valley is already fighting for the water that they have. Listen to the people there. They don't want this to happen. I don't think it should happen. Patty, there's uh, a lot more behind this, too. It's not just simply, you know, uh, that there's uh, political uh, ties to uh, renewable water resources. Douglas County is a growing county. The whole idea of uh, urban needs and rural water resources, is, it's not a new issue. But what do you think this case is going to mean? Well, it's going to mean full employment for some former governors like Bill Owens, who was working on behalf of this project. Uh, Senators Bennett and Hickenlooper have both come out against it. So it's going to, we hope there's a lot more discussion of it because the issues in the San Luis Valley, a few people down there might want it now because they'll be compensated. But what happens to future residents down there? David, I get the water picture and the different climate parts, but I also <coughs> understand the you know the yeah. assets some, that somebody yeah. owns, and yeah. you can tell somebody to, to sell it. I want you to lock down. You can't sell your house yeah. because I think it's beautiful. Well, wait a second. What does that mean for me? Is that going to bring up these bigger ideas? Right, and this is not a taking against the will of any water rights holder. The Denver Water Board was infamous uh, over Colorado history for using eminent domain to like take water from West Slope water rights holders and, and divert it into Denver. This isn't that. This would only be voluntary purchases of people who have water rights and the right to sell them. And as, as you said, it, it is buy and dry because that's it would end the ability to irrigate uh, the farms where they're, they're currently being used. I, I understand the, the opposition, but it, it's important to know that anything that would happen here would be consensual. Mm -hmm. Scott, wrap it up for us. Is, is this becoming a bigger deal, a bigger conversation in the months to come? Well, I, I think it's important to understand the process of water uh, in Colorado where we have specific water courts. We have judges who sit over water courts who, who determine the fairness of uh, the use, purchase, sale, uh, transportation of water. And so there's a big, long process. So if, if when you say, uh, will this be an issue for weeks to come, this will be an issue for years and years to come. Five, ten years down the road, we'll still be talking about this. I, I think you're absolutely right on that one, Scott. It is time for a very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Cahoon, please start us off. Well, we are marking the start, the real start of the election season with the caucuses next week. Good for everyone who wants to participate in them. Bad for the candidates who are already starting to play dirty with some of their advertising. <laughs> That's probably the <laughs> nicest way you could describe that advertisement, Patty. So. <laughs> David. The uh, beginning of what may be World War III uh, prompted that, that very night, I think, two, two thoughtful responses from the Colorado congressional delegation. Senator Bennett <laughs> said we should impose the strictest sanctions possible against uh, the Russian dictatorship, and Representative Boebert said we should start moving immediately towards independence and using all of our domestic resources, both for ourselves and for export to our allies. Scott, your disgrace of the week. Uh, another state, Governor Abbott down in Texas, his attack on people for who they are, whether it's uh, transgendered, 
um, or uh, basis of, of race and education. Uh, there's so much disgrace there. Um, we need another show. <laughs> Bree. Douglas County School District, the circus over there that does not stop. Closed door meetings, ousting of their superintendent who was well loved, these late Friday night, get your popcorn, watch the school board meetings. I mean, just, I'm, done, I'm over it. Usually folks go to Masterpiece Theater for drama, but they've just been tuning just, in for Douglas County <laughs> School Boards for yeah. drama these days. The time for the hardest part of the show to say something nice about somebody. Patty. Well, and I'm going to say something mean again about Douglas County because they've got a court hearing at 1.30 right as we're taping this. So we don't know what will happen with that on a motion for summary judgment. But I'm going to the poor people of Silverton. Bless their hearts who are cut off by another avalanche. Really, you learn how to be independent in Colorado. Four feet of snow in Silverton. It's like the scene in The Shining, except it's not a Hollywood set. It's for real. David. The Colorado State University men's basketball team, which is getting very close to uh, uh, joining the uh, the March Madness tournament. A lot, of, a lot of buffs in the family, so I will echo those. Scott. Um, I want to say thank you to Senator Leroy Garcia for his service as Senate president as he moves off to the Department of Defense. And welcome to Senator Steve Fenberg. Big job um, in the Senate, and I'm sure he's going to do a great one. Bree. Uh, Kyle Clark at Nine News for using his huge platform, very mainstream platform, to talk about harm reduction um, with the fentanyl deaths in Commerce City. He took time to talk about why he carries the overdose reversal drug Narcan, and I thought that was an incredible thing for him to do with a platform as large as his. It certainly began a conversation about something I think not a lot of people would realize Absolutely. they could actually be a part of. And I will continue to say something nice is I want to give a, a quick shout out to uh, Chris and Kathy Schmidt. They hosted a, a little get together for us that hosted that welcomed officially welcomed our new general manager Kristen Blessman uh, just yesterday. It was a wonderful event. And it was great to uh, have people there. It was nice to be able to meet in three dimensions, which was uh, a very nice treat. I also want to remind everybody about the services that your membership at PBS 12 made possible. DW News is available on basically every platform we have. If you go to pbs12.org, 24-7 coverage and their live coverage of what's going on in Ukraine is available right there on the website. 12.3 is 24-7 and available for free over the air, also everything on cable. And of course, you can watch DW News every weekday here at 4.30 at 10 o'clock. Just a lot of different ways that we are happy to bring a global views to you. And all of these services have been made possible through your membership. So when you figure out out your, you, you, whether it's pledging, whether it's uh, Susie Orman or some of our great music shows, or you're buying a ticket to one of our Red Rocks concerts, or anything in between, what do you make possible? Not only, uh, uh, I will humbly say, local programs here like Colorado Inside Out, but you're also making these kinds of great services possible. And if you want to keep up with what's going on in Asia, because frankly, that's not as, that is, it's not as if that news is going away, NHK World Japan is available 24-7, both on our website and on 12.4. All of these are cable channels, if you're watching on cable, all these are online, if you watch on the computer, whatever it is, we're here for you. That is all time we have for this episode of Colorado Inside Out. For everybody here at PBS 12 and Colorado Inside Out, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks for watching. Good night.